And we're going to turn to read from God's Word now. Um, my name's Joe, and it's a pleasure to be doing the reading this morning. Um, we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel, and we've got a couple of different readings. Um, the first is from chapter 21, and the second is from chapter 23. But we'll start in chapter 21, so if you want to um, turn there in your Bibles, the page number's on the screen. So we're going to start at verse 15, chapter 21. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jar Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath. And they fell at the hands of David and his men. And then the second reading, if you just turn on a page um, or so, is from chapter 23, and we'll start at verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pas Damim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite, when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils. Israel's troops fled from them, but... Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field, 
He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So, the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three men. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the 30 were... Asahel, the brother of Joab. Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem. Shammah, the Haradite. Elika, the Haradite. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, son of Ikesh from Tekoa. Abiezer from Anathoth. Mebani, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahohite. Maharia, the Natophathite. Heled, son of Bana the Netophathite, Ittai, son of Ribai, from Gibeah in Benjamin, Benaiah, the Pirathonite, Hidai, from the ravines of Gash, Abialbon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Bahumite, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, son of Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, son of Shara, the Hararite, Eliphalet, son of Ahasbi, the Machathite. Eliam, son of Ahitophel, the Gilanite. Hezro, the Carmelite. Parai, the Arbite. Igal, son of Nathan from Zobah, the son of Hagri. Zelek, the Ammonite. Naharia, the Beerathite, the armor bearer of Joab, son of Zariah. Ira, the Irathite. Gareb, the Ithrite and Uriah, 
the Hittites. There were 37 in all. Well, I do always uh, begin by saying thank you to the reader, but uh, (laughs) thank you, Joe, very much for that reading. Well, this uh, passage may appear at first sight um, a little strange. Um, Maybe, depending on your personality, uh, a little bit uninspiring. Perhaps it's not anybody's favorite passage of the Bible. Uh, In contrast to the brilliant flowing narrative that has given us most of David's story so far with its fine tensions, its subtle characterizations, its dramatic plot twists, uh, we now seem to have stepped into a military archive, a kind of a scrapbook of snippets of information about soldiers and weapons, various battle reports. And it all ends with that long list of obscure names that uh, reads a bit like the scrolling credits at the end of the film and, you know, who stays in the cinema to watch them? It's probably not a part of the Bible to get your heart racing in your daily quiet time, if you have one, and its immediate relevance to our world is hard to see. Although, if you're looking for a boy's name right now, this is gold dust. Personally, I think we could do with a few more Ishbi Benobs in our world. (laughs) But the more time I've spent with this passage this week, the more I've come to realize what a crucial, what a moving, and what a deeply encouraging part of the Bible this is. I want to talk about two principles that will help us to see that, first of all. The first is to note, again, the structure of these chapters at the end of 2 Samuel and the significance of the structure. I said last week, if you were here, that this is not an appendix but a conclusion, a carefully composed epilogue that finishes both books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And if you just look at the screen again, you'll see that these chapters are not arranged chronologically, but thematically in this lovely symmetrical sort of sandwich structure with two poems at the center. Uh, I put it on the back of the outline. You don't need to copy this down. It is actually the structure of 2 Samuel 21 and 24. Now, one implication of this arrangement is that the poems, right in the center of the sandwich, become all important. They help us to interpret the surrounding narrative. Uh, What does this mean? Well, it means essentially we're given a contrast. Uh, There's a contrast at work in these chapters between the poems and the narrative. And in the poems, we kind of see the ideal kingship, the ideal of the kingdom of God, And then in the narrative surrounding it, we get the reality of David's kingdom. And so the whole section works by this kind of contrast and the toing and froing between the ideal of the kingdom and the mirror and the reality in David's kingdom. And so we're able to see, as we take the section as a whole, both the glory and the weakness of David's kingdom. In other words, David's kingdom, right at the end of the book, is being assessed in the light of the poems. The poems kind of hold up a mirror to everything we've seen so far. And it's in that assessment of David's kingdom compared to the kingdom of God, it's in that assessment that the purpose and the lesson of this whole book lies. So what we're looking at this morning is one part of that contrast, 
the kind of the inner ring of the sandwich, if you like, concerning David's mighty men. And that brings us to the second principle that we've got to keep in mind this morning to help us. Taken as a whole, this section, with its contrast between the ideals of the poems and the reality of the narrative, gives us David's kingdom as a kind of paradox. On the one hand, David's kingdom is very human. There is weakness in the kingdom. There is frailty, there is sin, and there is a lot of violence. But on the other hand, David's kingdom, for all its weakness and frailty, does give us a true outline of the kingdom of God that is to come in Jesus. So it's a little bit like looking at a kind of a black and white sketch that is not the full picture, but it is a real picture. And when Jesus comes, that picture will be filled in. And so David's enemies are God's enemies. David's victories are God's victories. And so these stories give us a foretaste of the even greater victory that Jesus will win over an even greater enemy. And David's servants, who now feature quite prominently in this part of the book, his warriors, are God's servants. And so this gives us a glimpse of what it means to be a servant of Jesus in the war he is waging. And I don't know about you, but I find that rather scary. And so when we look at David's kingdom, we are seeing something in outline, in anticipation of what the real kingdom of God is going to be like, although it's not the whole story. As Jack reminded us, we call this series, Your Kingdom Come, because when we pray, Your Kingdom Come, we are praying for the kingdom that has been anticipated throughout the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, but whose ideal is not going to come in David, but in Jesus. Well, what that all means is that whether you are a follower of Jesus this morning or not, this passage, for all its intricacies, is going to be crucial to hear. Because it's going to remind us that we are at war. It's going to remind us of the reality of the war that is being fought right now in our world. And it's going to challenge us to make sure that we're on the right side. And it's going to give us courage in the fight. So there's an outline to follow if you uh, want to follow it on the inside. And we begin with the kingdom at war in 21, 15 to 22. The section begins with the return of Israel's old enemy. Look at verse 15. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. This ongoing conflict between Israel and the Philistines has been a big part of David's story, especially in the early days. And the return of the conflict here might take us by surprise. We may have thought that the Philistines had been finished off, but it's to remind us of the reason for kingship in the first place. You may remember, if you can think back that far to 1 Samuel chapter 8, 20, when the people asked Samuel for a king, they asked for a king to go out and fight our battles for us. And in 1 Samuel 9, 16, God gave them Saul with this express purpose of destroying the Philistines. And then God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 includes a situation of rest from all the enemies in the land. In other words, slaying Philistines was not just 
a sport that David happened to enjoy, nor an unfortunate sideline of the business of being king. It is his main business. That's why the story of David killing Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17, that archetypal Philistine enemy, is so key. This is David's primary work because this is how God is going to save his people and give them rest in the kingdom. Well, having remembered that, what we read next is a surprise. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines and he became exhausted. The detail that David went down with his men is important to notice. It's a a hint of a theme that we're going to come back to more in the second half. That David is not a lone ranger who takes all the glory for himself, but he's a team player who fights in hand-to-hand combat with his men. Despite this, surprisingly, David becomes weary. And for the first time in the whole book, he has to withdraw from the battle for his own safety. Well, it's in this context that the men kind of take over the action and we get four little cameos or snapshots of not David fighting Philistines, but David's men fighting Philistines on his behalf. Each of these incidents briefly reported have a number of features in common. The first, very simply, is that the assailant is truly terrifying. Have a look at the first one. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighs 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. There's some uncertainty about the meaning of the Hebrew word Rapha, which occurs several times throughout this passage. It may be a personal name. It may signify a group or race of people. But what everybody is agreed with is it has something to do with being big, And so some English translations have the word giant there instead of Rapha. So here are four tales of very big enemies. That brings us to the second feature of these four little cameos, which all of these giants are supposed to remind us of somebody. Notice, as well as this new fangled weapon or armor, this Hebrew doesn't actually have the word sword. It's a a new something. It could be a lightsaber, couldn't it? It could be anything. We don't know. But as well as that newfangled weapon, notice the massive bronze spearhead, the huge physical stature, the mention of Gath later on. These details are meant to remind us of that most famous of all giants, Goliath of Gath, and of his downfall at the hand of David in 1 Samuel 17. So each of these four stories is a kind of a David and Goliath reborn. It's like the film franchises, you know, when they kind of run out of ideas. You've got David and Goliath 1. Well, that was a success, so we'll make David and Goliath 2. Then we've got David and Goliath 3 and David and Goliath 4. It's just the same story over and over again. It is a great story after all, so why not? Which brings us to the third feature of these cameos. In each case, the victory is won by the smaller person. The victory is won by the underdog against the odds. The Hebrew in verse 15 suggests that the Philistines were the aggressors. And in verse 16, this formidably armed giant, Ishbi Benob, I just love saying that name, seeing David's exhaustion, moves in for the kill. Humanly speaking, David doesn't stand for a chance, does he? But look at verse 17. 
But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. So there, without the blow-by-blow report, is the little action replay of 1 Samuel 17. We're not told much detail, but the next thing we know, good old Ishbi Benob is horizontal, and his massive spearhead and his newfangled weapon is lying in the mud. So what is all this about? The question we should always ask in our Bible reading is why? Why has the editor or the narrator put this here? Why this action replay of David and Goliath over and over again? But this time with David's men doing the fighting, what's it got to do with life here and now? Well, it's all got to do with the paradoxical nature of David's kingdom and how it foreshadows Jesus' kingdom. See, on the one hand, what these little stories tell us is that Unfortunately, the kingdom is still at war. This enemy, Goliath, keeps coming back. He's got different names, but he's the same guy. It's a bit like all those baddies in modern fiction that you see, Voldemort, Sauron, Darth Vader. One of the features is they they just keep coming back, don't they? He's not been properly dealt with yet. A little bit like that enemy in the New Testament, the Antichrist. Yes, there is an Antichrist, but... There are many antichrists in the world, and they keep on coming. And so David's kingdom, represented by David himself, is weak and vulnerable in the face of this implacable enemy who keeps on coming back. But on the other hand, the other part of the paradox, the kingdom is protected because they keep winning. Goliath rises up and he gets slain. And just as David once slew the Goliath, now his men repeat and relive that victory over and over again with the same impossible odds. And so there's a tension, isn't there? There's a paradox. The kingdom is at war, but the kingdom is protected. And this paradox is beautifully summed up by David's men in verse 17. David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle so the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. You see how they're expecting the battle to continue, but the lamp of Israel is never going to die. Who is the lamp of Israel? Well, in this case, it's David. After the dark days of Judges, God gave Israel a king, and that king brought light into the darkness. He gave them hope. And so the men are absolutely right. If David gets snuffed out, then Israel gets snuffed out with him. But remember what we saw in 2 Samuel 7. God has promised that will never happen. God has promised there will be a throne on the throne, a king on the throne of David forever. And so the paradox, the kingdom's at war, but the kingdom's protected. Well, the next three little scenes in 1822 underline this. The second battle doesn't mention David at all, but does feature another giant who is slain by one of David's men, verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibekai the Hushatite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. The third battle doesn't allude to Goliath, but actually mentions him by name, or perhaps someone with the same name, or more probably, as the footnote suggests, 
the brother of the original Goliath of Gath, verse 19. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jareh, Oregim, the Bethlehemite killed Goliath, the Gittite, or his brother, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Whoever this Goliath is, the point is clear. Another flashback to 1 Samuel 17. Another against the odds victory against a formidable opponent. And the fourth and final battle reports features a man who is not named but is remembered for his unusually impressive appearance. Verse 20. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemir, David's brother, killed him. Here's another giant from Gath, Goliath's hometown, a brute of a man, the final in a series, the final enemy, the final Goliath. And I think we're supposed to understand that he would be terrifying. And his defeat would be, again, against the odds. But notice the extra detail here in verse 21. It's not his appearance that is the problem. That word taunt, to mock or defy or ridicule, is only used in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in one other place, on the lips of Goliath himself, where in 1 Samuel 17 it's used five times. And there we saw that to taunt or ridicule Israel is to ridicule Israel's God. And so Goliath, like everyone who mocks God, is silenced fully and finally. Well, these four little episodes or snapshots are now summed up in verse 22. These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. This first section then shows us that a kingdom is still at war. Many, many battles. Many enemies keep on coming, and the war continues. The king and his people cannot rest yet. They cannot lay down their weapons. If they do, they will lose the kingdom and be plunged into darkness. But when they fight, they win. And they win because God is fighting for them. Remember how we're meant to refer to the poems to understand what is really going on. So have a look at the beginning of chapter 22, which we'll come back to next week. Where David says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I'm saved from my enemies. If you're a Christian this morning, I wonder if you ever stop to praise God in words like that. That God has saved you from violent enemies. That he is your warrior. That he is the soldier who has defended you. That's what David's saying. And so David's enemies are God's enemies and his victories are God's victories. And before we move on to chapter 3, let's just pause there for a moment and reflect on why this is significant for us. See, for anyone who has made the decision to follow Jesus, I think there is an encouragement here, isn't there? Some of us have made that decision, perhaps recently, and have just begun to feel the cost of it. 
And perhaps some of us have made that decision a long time ago and have got scars to show for it. Well, this is reminding us that to be a Christian is to be at war. And it's not glamorous. It is scary and horrible. War hurts. If we are followers of Jesus, we will, as we hold our lives up to the mirror of God's word here, we will be able to think of times when we have crumpled in the conflict, when our discipleship has been marked by cowardice and compromise rather than costly sacrifice and courage. I think every Christian in, in the room knows the shame of running away from the hard things Jesus calls us to do. We can all think of times when we should have spoken, when we didn't, when we could have gone the extra mile, when we chose not to, times when we could have taken a hit for Jesus but chose our own comfort instead, times when we bury our head in the sand and pretend that there is no war going on. This passage, I think, gives us courage in our cowardice because it reminds us that Jesus wins. David's victories are a tiny foretaste of the greater victory that Jesus will win over an even greater enemy, Satan. And so here's an encouragement to us. Being a Christian will hurt us. And if you've not experienced that yet, well, either you're not a follower of Jesus or, or you soon will experience it. But being hurt does not mean losing because the battle belongs to the Lord. But the other thing is that there is a wake-up call if you are not one of Jesus' people. If you still resist him, if you've never made that commitment in your heart and mind to align yourself to his cause, then this passage reminds us that, well, there's a hard word for you to hear this morning that you are still on the enemy camp. You, like the Philistines, if you've not bowed the knee to Jesus as his anointed, then you will find yourself opposed by Jesus and crushed by him on the last day. And so this passage serves as a, as a serious warning to make sure that each of us are on the right side before it's too late. Well, as we turn to the second part now, we're going to see a little bit more what life is like for Jesus' people. We see the king and his warriors. If you turn over to chapter 23, verse 8, the second part of that sort of inner ring of the sandwich, the heading in our Bible just calls it David's mighty men. And we get this kind of little list and selection of the courageous warriors who served David and his king and his kingdom loyally over many years and through many wars. It is exactly what it looks like. <clears throat> it is an honor call of the heroes of the kingdom. It is like walking into <clears throat> David's palace and we see the portraits of these men on the wall or the credits that scroll up at the end of the epic film that we have been looking at. As such, it's not the easiest passage to make sense of, let alone to read. There are lots of unfamiliar names, names that don't appear anywhere else, people who we've not met before, ending in that long list from 24 to 39. 
And you may have noticed as well, there are some confusing things going on with numbers. The number three, the number 30, and so on. Let's try not to get bogged down with those problems, but let's instead meet some of the men and see what they have to teach us. Firstly, courageous exploits celebrated in 8 to 12. First, we meet this courageous group known as the Three. If all the men in this section are David's elite forces, because obviously there are thousands of people not mentioned, then these three are the kind of the elite of the elite. Loyal, courageous to the point of reckless, skillful, and utterly devoted to David. First up is Josheb Bashabeth the Takemonite. Verse 8. Josheb Bashabeth the Takemonite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. And that's all we're told. <clears throat> Wouldn't you love to know more about Josheb Bashabeth, who happens to share his name with another famous action hero? The name's Bashabeth, Josheb Bashabeth. But of course, James Bond is a, is a Barbie doll compared to him. Notice how he scored up 800 fatalities. You can imagine him making the little notches on the side of his spear to add them up and then bragging about them proudly at the pub later, whatever they did in those days. It's a David and Goliath victory again against the odds. And then there is Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, who single-handedly held back a Philistine contingent while the rest of Israel fled until his hand grew so tired or perhaps coagulated with blood around his sword, but he still didn't stop until every Philistine was dead. And then there is Shammah, son of Agi, the most violent vegeta vegetarian in history, defending a crop of lentils. Now that is devotion. But what all these three exploits have in common is that they are amazing acts of individual courage in the face of terrifying enemies and victories won against the odds. But again, what are we to make of this? What is the lesson for us? Well, notice once again two themes running in parallel with each other. The first is that this is, and I don't want to shy away from this, this is a celebration of courage. Notice unusually the way each man's name is given in full. His first name, his father's or family name, and then his town or tribe that he comes from. It's a little bit like the battle rolls that you read on the kind of war memorials in the center of a town or village. This is a moment where David shares his glory, where those who have served with him are honored for their courage and faithfulness and sacrifice. This is the moment that they, or perhaps their families, if they have died, get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the king. But on the other hand, this is no exercise in hero worship, because notice now the all-important ingredient in these stories, verse 10 and verse 12. The Lord, verse 10, brought about a great victory that day. Verse 12, he defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, that does not mean that these exploits were not outstanding examples of human skill and courage. 
These men didn't just go into the battle with their eyes closed and do nothing. But their importance lies beyond that. These men were servants of God's king. They were servants of God's Christ, his anointed, to whom he had already promised the victory ahead of time. It was knowing this that made them bold. Their cause was the kingdom of God. And their acts, therefore, acts of God. And when you fight for the kingdom, God fights for you. Glance over to the poem again where David attributes all his victories to God. 22 verse 30, just back a, a page. 22 30, with your help I can advance against a troop. With my God I can scale a wall. So when they fought for David, they fought for God and used their courage, and God used their courage and skill as the means to bring about the victory promised. And so we've got that lovely biblical tension between human effort and God's responsibility. God uses their courage, and they are honored for it. But in the final analysis, all the praise and glory goes to God. Well, what about this strange little story in 13 to 17? An extraordinary story of devotion to David. Another three mighty men, this time not the three. These three are part of the 30, and they don't get named. And during harvest time, verse 13, three of them came down to David at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. The mention of the cave of Adullam and the Philistines occupying Bethlehem probably takes us back to David's early days, his outlaw days, when he was on the run from Saul. And you may remember back in those days that it was in this cave of Adullam that David gathered around him the waifs and strays of Israel, all those we read in 1 Samuel 22 who were in distress or in debt or discontented. But it turns out these are not just hard men who loved to fight, but they were men whose hearts had been totally captured by their king. So look at what happens, verse 15. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. I don't think this is a serious request. I think it's more likely that this is wishful thinking just spoken out loud. Bethlehem was David's hometown. The Philistines were occupying it, and so his longing for a taste of Bethlehem water is an expression of his homesickness and his frustration that the Philistines are still there. But he lets the thought out, and three of his mighty men take it as their cue to do something extraordinary for David. Verse 16, so the three mighty men broke through the Philistines' lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. This is a 25-mile round trip. And not sneaking into Bethlehem at night, but actually breaking through the Philistines' ramps just to get some water. And you can picture these guys, can't you? Maybe on the way back, they gave each other a little high five or whatever the ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age Jewish equivalent was. Took the little flask or bottle of water to David, the sweat and blood dripping from their faces, waiting for his gratification 
as he drunk it. Which makes David's reaction seem bizarre, doesn't it? But he refused to drink it. He said he poured it out before the Lord. We are stunned by what seems callous ingratitude. But listen to what David says, and we see it's exactly the opposite. Verse 17, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. You see what is happening here? David so values the risk that the men had taken to bring this gift that he cannot accept it. He realizes that only God is worthy of such sacrifice. And so he turns it into a sacrifice for God. He redirects the men's devotion to God to whom it truly belongs. And this points us, doesn't it, to the one son of David who will be worthy of such devotion. Well, no wonder the narrator now concludes rather wistfully, I think, such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Well, we now come to the final section in 18 to 39. And you'll have noticed that this comes to us in two different forms. In 18 to 23, we have another series of brief reports about great exploits by mighty men, which we won't uh, dwell on too much. We've got Abishai, who kills 300 with his spear. Benai, who kills two of Moab's best men and a lion in a pit on this memorably snowy day and an enormous Egyptian with a club. And put these things together, and again, we're getting little snapshots, examples from many similar stories that could have been included giving us this overwhelming picture of strength and might in David's kingdom. It's a mirror image to the first passage that we looked at, isn't it? The kingdom is at war. It is constantly under attack. But God is at work through David, through the courage and skill of his men, bringing about what he said he would through Hannah in her song in 1 Samuel 2, to break the weapons of his enemies to arm those who trust him with strength. This is a little image of what it means for the kingdom of God to come, for God to put down his enemies, to silence the mockers, to give strength to his king. The second half of this last section changes form, and we get this list of names, very few details, We're told it's a military unit called the 30. You'll have noticed that it actually adds up to 37, although if you count them, it's difficult to make it add up to 37. And these people are all here because they have excelled in their service for the kingdom of God. It is a role of honor held up as examples for us to follow. Most of the names are unknown to us. And we wonder, don't we, about their histories. What was it that made them make this list? But there's one name, isn't there, that makes us pause. The entire account ends with a name that brings flooding back memories of the lowest point in the whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel. Verse 39, we read, And Uriah the Hittite was among them. This is clearly deliberate. The list is not in some kind of alphabetical order. It's clearly intentional that this whole section of glory and power and strength ends by reminding us of the great weakness of David's kingdom. 
If we've enjoyed this section, and I hope we have, it's been great to see the positive side of the kingdom in contrast to last week's very difficult passage. This line throws a bucket of cold water all over us. Because you may remember, and if this is new to you, let me just fill, you, fill in the details, that Uriah the Hittite was somebody who not only died fighting for David, but someone David himself actually had killed to cover up his own adultery with Uriah's wife. And so the whole glorious account ends on this note of weakness. A humbling reminder that in the midst of a kingdom built on strength, there is one weak link. David himself. And so a reminder that for the kingdom to come, we need a man who is not just mighty, but righteous. The one who Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace. The man whose victory over evil and rise to the throne of David is not accomplished by spears and swords, but by the violence of his own sacrifice on the cross, and whose victory is declared by his resurrection from the dead. We need Jesus Christ. Well, I want to conclude then with three brief words of encouragement for us, which we can talk about and reflect on uh, through the week. Courage, honour, and hope. Firstly, I wonder what springs to your mind when you think about elite troops like the three. Well, I'll show you what springs to my mind. These people. People with incredible skill and unusual fearlessness. You knew it was coming at some point, didn't you? <laughs> and you might think, well, that's not for me. I am a timid person, warfare, fighting. I don't see myself as a soldier. But if you're a Christian this morning, I hope one thing you're going to take away is that this is for you. You are a soldier of Christ. Some of us who are perhaps a little bit on in years may remember in the 1980s the status quo song, You're in the Army Now. I hate that song. I can just, I've heard it in my head all week. You're in the army now. But this is what this passage is saying to us. And in Jesus' army, there are no special forces or elite troops. We are all soldiers of Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? How there was a time, I think, when the songs that Christians sang were much more about soldiers and warfare and fighting. I think we've gone away from those. It'd be interesting to think about why. I suspect it's because, well, various reasons... We don't like that sort of violent, militaristic language in church, but also because we ourselves, well, speaking personally, it's because I'm scared. I don't want to be in the army. I don't want to fight a war. And so I think this passage is here to give us courage. See, our old friend Joshua Bashibeth, it must have been terrifying, wasn't it, facing down 800 enemies. But if you're a Christian in a hostile society, you do know what it means to feel outnumbered. It 
can feel like the whole world is against you. And if you've ever had the experience of being the only Christian in your sports team, in your school, in your workplace, in your changing room, in your family, in your street, in your community, you know it takes great courage, doesn't it? Just to say a word for Jesus, the word that results in being hurt slightly. Rocker Alice Cooper, who I must say I don't think I've ever quoted from before, he says this. Drinking beer is easy, trashing your hotel room is easy, but being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. Perhaps some of us have forgotten that to be a Christian is to be a soldier. Paul says, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Fight the good fight of the faith. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. It's a spiritual war not of giants with swords, but with even greater, more horrific enemies. All of them overwhelming, all of them big and scary. Well, of course, the way we fight that won't look particularly impressive. It won't even be as impressive as defending a field of lentils, let alone throwing down a lion in a pit. It might be resisting that great, daily temptation that comes your way. It might be loving the unlovable person God has put into your life. It might be being patient with children at home. It might be making some sacrifice, financial or otherwise. It might be speaking up in that seminar where you know you will be ridiculed. Whatever it is for you, Christians are called to fight. And so I ask you, as I ask myself, when was the last time you did a really courageous, costly thing for Jesus? Something that actually gave you a wound so that the kingdom of God could advance. When was that last time? And I want to address, firstly, younger people among us. And I'll let you decide if you're in that, that category. I want to suggest that it's tough to be a Christian in our world right now for you. I don't think there is a more bloody battlefield than the school playground or the classroom or the university lecture theater. The Philistines are pussycats compared to some of the opponents that you have to face, some of the six-toed giants, and it's going to get harder. Well, this passage is here to give us courage, to call us to step up and do great things for Jesus. Jesus is calling, I think, for a generation of young people who will love their king enough to risk everything for his cause. And so what would be the equivalent of you this week in the year ahead, in the next 10 years of going to the cave, in the well in Bethlehem, to get the water for the king that you love? Are you up for this? Who else is going to reach the nation for Jesus but people with courage? Well, I've addressed the younger people. Let me now turn to those who perhaps have more of their life behind them than ahead of them. Those who, as Jack said earlier, are closer to the golden shore than others. And again, I'll let you choose if you're in that category or, or like me, you're sort of halfway uh, in between. Maybe the question for us is what kind of legacy are we going to leave? How are you going to contend for the gospel until the very end? 
what will it look like to model this kind of courage and devotion in retirement? When your friends and the world around us is just getting more and more comfortable, what will it mean to be a soldier for Christ in that stage of life? What will it mean in old age? What will it mean in ill health, in death? Perhaps your particular contribution is to be someone who prays courageously, who gives generously, who encourages and serves. Perhaps you will be like Eleazar, son of Dodai, and they will have, as someone once said, have to prize your dead fingers from your Bible before you retire. That's the first reflection. Honour is the second. The form these passages takes and their place in the book warns us against hero worship. All the way through, God is the hero. It is Christ who wins the victory. But part of the way God does it is by using the courage and the effort of his troops, the members of churches all over the world. God uses means. He gets the glory, but he uses means. And yet one of the striking aspects of the grace of Jesus is that, like David, he shares that glory with his servants. Isn't that incredibly gracious? He gives us the means, and then he rewards us for the very things he's given us. I was interested in reading up on this during the week that this record of the achievements of David's warriors at the end of uh, this passage is very unusual. In fact, it's unheard of in the ancient Near East. So in records of Assyrian and Babylonian military victories, the king is the only named warrior. Go to the British Museum and you can read about Tagleth, Pileser, Sargon, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and their great achievements, but you will never see a list of 37 of their friends. And Jesus calls his disciples in John 15 their friends, not downtrodden slaves, people he will honor in the end. You see this everywhere through the New Testament. Think, for example, about how Paul ends his letters with those lists of names of people he thanks and honors, those servants of the gospel. And it might be that your contribution is nothing glamorous, nothing that anybody will ever write on a plaque, but in the end, you will hear those words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done for sticking at it when it was hard. Well done for speaking up in that horrible situation. Well done for being a soldier of Christ. And then finally, hope. Because remember what it was that gave these men courage and boldness as they gathered in that cave with David? It wasn't an innate ability. It wasn't their personality. It wasn't their training. What gave them hope was David, who they loved with all their hearts, and a solid hope that one day he would be king. Well, think how much better our situation is now. The motley crew in the cave of Adullam has become this motley crew that Jesus is gathering into his church, the wastes and strays, the nobodies, whose one qualification is that we are captivated by our king 
and we have hope of his return. They look forward to David's victory, but we look forward to Christ's victory on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We look forward to his return when he will judge the Goliaths of the world, where he will reverse the taunts and every enemy will be brought down to the ground. We look at the cross of Christ and say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray together in response to this part of God's word. Let's pray. Before I pray, listen to these words from Paul. In Ephesians 6, our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your one true anointed King, Jesus, has won a final and total victory over your enemies when he died on the cross and declared that victory in his resurrection from the dead. Thank you that that victory will be seen by all creation when he returns to judge. And we pray that each of us now will turn to him will bow to Jesus in our hearts as our King, will be utterly captivated by him. And as disciples of Jesus, please help us not to fear the enemies he's called us to face, but to give everything to serve the one who chose to reveal his strength in the weakness of the cross and will honour our devotion when his victory is revealed. Amen.